I'm Stephen Lewandowski, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 247. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Woohoo! How have you been? Very well. Good. Very well. Good. We're back into lockdown in Germany. Or like, not complete lockdown, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are fa- facing restrictions here in Sweden as well, believe it or not. Yeah. 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 But well, yeah, we're good. So much for uh, <laughs> that the sta- status of uh, Sweden being the example for the lockdown deniers or the lockdown skeptics, so so to speak. Yeah, it, it, it that's very un- unscientific. That's not true. I mean, yeah. it is true, but it's not true. It's The thing is, it's <laughs> much more complicated than that, yeah. which is uh, all I will say about that today. Yeah. <laughs> and that's my favorite saying about everything, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. What we do uh, miss right now this time of year and i think we've mentioned it before is qed yes right yeah it is right but there is the next best thing and uh, that is to do an old qed again which is what they've decided to do now the qed people in their uh, wisdom so uh it'll be qed 2018 again online Mm. And it will be on the Saturday, the 14th of November and Sunday, the 15th of November. And what they will do is a lot of things, most, I think, things that happened in QD 2018 were filmed and documented. And they are going to live, well, live stream old things via Twitch. And I'm looking forward to doing that. That is, mm-hmm. of course, we all wanted to be there. And... Um, if we can't, at least we can see it happening again. Definitely, especially because um, with QED, because it's so great that uh, you sometimes have to choose where you go. And now this gives you the opportunity to actually see talks that you didn't see the first time when you were actually there. That's true. That's true. You always have to choose because things are happening at the same time and you have to choose whether to go to that thing or to the other thing. And now if you spend some time on it, you could actually probably see the whole thing. Yeah. That is really cool. And there is another very great advantage of that, that it's an actual recording. So it's it's going to be accurate. It's not like your memories of the event. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is something that, among others, we are covering on the interview that we pre-recorded with Stephen Lewandowski on this episode. So I think we should just get going with that. Every now and then, we interview someone whose work we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. This week, our guest is Stephen Lewandowski, who's a professor of cognitive psychology, 
Stephen, who is an Australian citizen, was actually born in Germany, but throughout his academic career, he has lectured and held research positions uh, in countries from the United States to Canada to Germany and the Netherlands. But he is currently a chair in cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. His field of expertise is in computational modeling originally, with a special interest in how myths and misinformation spread in society and what the major factors are in the acceptance of scientific facts. Apart from authoring two textbooks on computational modeling, in 2011, Stephen co-authored with John Cook a very important document for skeptics, The Debunking Handbook, a reference that people in the international skeptical community have translated into 13 different languages and have been using ever since. A few weeks ago, the new and updated Debunking Handbook 2020 was released, which gave us a good opportunity to finally invite him on the show. Stephen, welcome to the ESP and thanks for agreeing to do this interview. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Welcome. Well, it's been a while that uh, we've been meaning to, to, to ask you, but that was a great opportunity. And the Debunking Hangbook 2020, it has a lot of differences compared to the uh, 2011 one. So why did you feel the need to write up a new Debunking Handbook? And uh, what are the major points that needed updating? Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, because uh, 10 years are a very long time in an evolving research arena. When we wrote the first debunking handbook in, uh, you know, roughly 10 years ago, the field of debunking research was very small. There was maybe 10 people doing occasional work on it around the world. And then over the last five years, that sort of mushroomed into you know, something like 2,000 articles that have been published since 2017 alone on misinformation and fake news. So the explosion of knowledge was just immense. And so, of course, a few things changed. Now, what we did with this handbook, the latest one, the aspect that I'm most uh, excited about is that we actually try to produce a consensus document that is representing the view of the field. Okay. So unlike the first one, which was authored by two people, this one is authored by 22 people. I'm the lead <laughs> author on it, together with John Cook and Uli Ecker, and, and as a leading team, the Three Musketeers, we, we tend to work together a lot. But then what we did was to go to the scientific literature and we systematically searched using keywords such as misinformation and so on. We systematically searched for other scholars who might be qualified to be co-authors on this handbook. And we invited them all. Most of them accepted. We formed this team of 22 people. And we then used a consensus formation approach to write this handbook to make sure that what we're saying is representing the leading edge of knowledge in 2020. So, for example, we asked every author to put forward phenomena and recommendations that they thought we should mention. We then all rated these phenomena in a, in a little experiment, basically. We analyzed these data and we then formed teams that were discussing controversial issues to the extent that there was a controversy. And we then produced a document that represented the view of the top 22 people in the field. And when, when I say top 22, I mean, that was by objective indicators. We would go onto scholarly search engines and look for people who had published in this arena. So I'm really excited about the process and I'm actually working on a paper right now that's reporting how we produce the handbook. 
Not the handbook itself. That's not invested. It's out there. You can download it. But how the paper was produced. So I'm quite confident that what we have in this document represents the current state of knowledge in the field. Hmm. Now, how has that evolved in the last 10 years? What's different now from, from what we said 10 years ago? Well, a couple of things have changed and a lot of things are the same. What's the same is that the problem with misinformation is, the psychological problem is that it sticks. So once you have heard something, you will tend to believe it, which makes a lot of sense because we evolved to believe what other people told us. It was a very good idea when we were hunters and gatherers to believe what your parent told you about this poisonous berry. Don't eat that or you die. Well, that was a clever thing to believe that because those who didn't, well, they're no longer with us or their offspring aren't. So we tend to believe things. Now, once you believe things, it's extremely difficult to unbelieve. It is actually philosophically and cognitively very challenging to unbelieve something. Mm -hmm. And that's why even when people say that they no longer believe something that's false, very often we find evidence of that information still hanging around and affecting people's behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, that was one of the major premises of the first debunking handbook, and that is precisely what we're still talking about now, and it has been replicated over and over and over again, that misinformation is problematic because it sticks. Now, what we also said 10 years ago is that if you do the debunking properly, that then you can unstick the misinformation. And that is something we're still saying, but we have learned more about how to do that. So specifically, the way to do it is instead of just correcting misinformation by saying, hey, that's false. What you also have to do is to provide people with an alternative view of the world, an alternative explanation, an alternative causal model. And it's only if you do that and explain, in addition, if possible, why the misinformation was wrong, it is only then that you can get people out of the original perception of the world into the new one. Now, those two things are totally the same. We have, over the last 10 years, amassed more research to support the stickiness and also what it takes to unstick misinformation. Now, what has changed in in those last 10 years is that 10 years ago, we were concerned that if you do this debunking wrong, that you might make matters worse. That is, you can induce what was called a backfire effect. We were concerned that if you tell people, oh, this is wrong, that by simply saying that, you're reinforcing the initial belief in the falsehood. So we were saying, whoa, you got to be careful. If you don't do it right, you may do damage. Now, it turns out, 10 years later, what we now know is that if you aggregate all the evidence that's available, then that concern is probably not relevant now. In other words, we're now pretty confident that if you debunk, you're not going to make things worse. You may not totally unstick the misinformation, but you're very unlikely to make things worse. So you're saying the backfire effect doesn't really exist? or it, uh, <laughs> The problem with the backfire effect is that we find it. We continue to find it occasionally. It pops up in experiments. It does. It's statistically significant. I just published a paper earlier this year where we had three or four experiments and one of them showed a backfire effect. Now, the problem is 
if you then try to do it again, very often you don't get it. So if you, if you go across all the available evidence that everybody has ever looked at, which by now is, is dozens of experiments, probably with more than you know, thousands of participants, then overall the backfire effect uh, statistically does not exist. Huh. And hmm. that's notwithstanding the fact that on, on occasion it pops up. It is, it is this weird thing that says, ha ha, I'm here. And then you say, oh, cool, I'll replicate <laughs> you. Uh-uh. It doesn't work the next time. Around. <laughs> so I have a fair guess of what is going on there, but it's a guess. But basically what I think is happening is that the measures that we use in, in that circumstance aren't sufficiently reliable to preclude the occasional occurrence of, of a backfire effect. But when it comes to the practical guidance overall, the outcome is now pretty clear, which is don't withhold debunking just because you're afraid of a backfire effect. Mm -hmm. Now, you can okay, still good. do it wrong and make a mess of it. <laughs> That's a joke. That hasn't changed, but, but the concern about a backfire effect specifically hasn't, uh, hasn't materialized as much as we thought 10 years ago on the basis of the data that was available back then. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, here's, a, to me, a very important additional consideration. Whenever you are correcting something, whether you like it or not, you are accepting somebody else's rhetorical frame. You know, if, if you tell me that the moon is made of green cheese and then I get all excited and I say, no, 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 hang on. The moon is not made of green cheese. It's made of, you know, fairy dust or something else. Well, <laughs> yes, I'm correcting that and I may be able to do it successfully, but I'm still talking about things you cooked up. So mm -hmm. correcting necessarily means that you're buying into somebody else's rhetorical frame. Now, sometimes that's unavoidable, but as a you know, scientist who's interested in communication and misinformation and all that kind of stuff, to me, that suggests that there are certain situations when you're much better off to talk about your own framing of the facts and not waste your time to debunk something that few people have heard of. Uh, and if you go to the debunking handbook, the 2020 version, you will find a flowchart in there that actually outlines that. And basically, um, and, and I confront this all the time in my work on climate change and other political issues when I monitor what's going on on social media, you know, I occasionally come across a myth or, or a talking point that is being used by, let's say, climate deniers. Mm -hmm. And I talk to my colleagues and we sort of, you know, have a discussion about whether or not it's worth drawing attention to this or whether we should just ignore it and keep talking about the facts. And very often we find that we, we, we should keep talking about the facts and ignore this distraction. And very often that turns out to be correct because the myth just disappears. It doesn't find traction. So there is a bigger context to the debunking, which is that you got to be clever in, in when you waste your time on debunking, because every time you debunk, you're not talking about the facts. If you're a scientist debunking myths, you're not talking about your science. You're talking about somebody else's nonsense. Hmm. And, and I think that's something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that floor chart is very amazing. And, and what I find amazing about the, the whole debunking handbook as well is that with all those contributors, all the, the, the available science behind all that, uh, one would think that uh, you could write up a hundred page long book about the whole thing, but you managed to, and that's amazing. You managed to keep it so concise 
and so clear that it's digestible. It's easy to read through. You can read through it several times to let it sink in. And uh, that's what I think makes it an absolutely amazing debunking handbook for everyone out there. I'm glad you, you appreciate it and that you noticed that. And that was part of the challenge. And the way we did that was by running this quote unquote experiment amongst ourselves for all the authors to rank order or to rate the importance of these various findings and recommendations. And we then rank ordered them and we just decided on a cutoff. We just decided, okay, you know, we, we, we're going to talk about the top, whatever. I can't remember now what it was, 10, 20, 30 phenomena. But we're not going to talk about the others because our team judgment was that they weren't important enough to, to be used mm -hmm. in a concise mm -hmm. document. And that itself was a fascinating process because, of course, there are different criteria you could apply to, you know, the cutoff you can define in different ways. And we had a long debate and a Zoom call. And, and by the way, all these documents about our discussion are publicly available. They're, they're a part of the paper that is accompanying the debunking handbook, mm -hmm. which explains the process. So... Uh, if you don't agree with our cutoffs, well, the data are up there, then you can write your own uh, debunking handbook. You can include all the other stuff you want. So, and, and of course, for us, the important thing was to have something that's concise and short enough for people to actually read. You know, one of the things about yeah. big books that I have learned is that very few people actually read them. And smaller things are, are read more widely. So, so we aim for that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And also, we don't find as many translators if the handbooks are too long. That's another thing we've learned. So we kept it short for you, Andras. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and speaking of translators, how can people actually help with translating this one? Well, uh, we have a person in Germany um, who's our coordinator, Berbel Winkler, who's from around Stuttgart or in Stuttgart. And if you go to the website sks.to slash db2020 then if you look around carefully enough you'll find a contact address and then you can volunteer for that or you can just send me an email and i'll forward you to bearable but at the moment gosh we have one translation at least that's already out and we have a few others in planning i i suspect just like the first one that within a year or so we'll probably have at least half a dozen languages. And I know the German version is either out or nearly complete because I've seen that already. Hmm. And other mm -hmm. stuff is on the way. Just to mention how it's being done, uh, I'm pretty sure that it's, it's being done as it was with the 2011 version, that uh, someone will do the translations and it will be formatted to the same outlook which is absolutely brilliant. So you can use it in your own language for your own audience. Uh, you can download it in, in a PDF format and in your own language, and it looks amazing. It looks like the original, but in your language. So that's how it's done. Exactly. It has the same graphics in it and, and the yeah. same design. And our graphics designer is working with the translators to, to make that happen. Yeah. And we have this amazing graphics designer who is just absolutely fantastic and just coincidentally happens to be married to John Cook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've heard. Yeah. You knew that already. Okay. <laughs> he did mention her, yeah. So it's available there on the website. You can download it and hopefully soon in many different languages. Who is the intended audience? Mm. Uh, who, who do you want to read this? I mean, of course, everybody, but who did you have in mind? 
Well, we tried to write it so it was accessible to an educated lay audience. So we tried our best to avoid uh, jargon. Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, tried to make it plain English, as simple as possible. That's because we do want to make it accessible to everybody. But in particular, our targets are journalists, uh, people like yourself, you know, the skeptic community, policymakers. And uh, politicians, political aides, people who are into communication. So, for example, the uh, debunking handbook is is fairly well known within the European Commission in Brussels, and you know they rely on it. They have put it on various websites. I've seen it up there. They've received an update, and they're now updating their websites and so on. So, so that's the audience. Basically everyone. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> everyone yeah. who wants to live in a world without misinformation. Well, yeah. yeah. And the previous one, the last I heard, it was downloaded somewhere between half a million and, and a million times. Uh, I, I don't have exact data because websites sort of change and all that. But it, it yeah. was pretty um, pretty widely circulated. And this one we're hoping will, will go a long way as well. Sh- shouldn't it be around in schools? Well, that's a very interesting question. Yes, I would say it should be. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things about schools is that one of the most promising, in my view, most promising things that's happening right now in schools is that students are taught how to read information on the internet. Things like lateral reading. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it basically means that instead of trying to figure out whether a website is reliable by looking at that website, you forget about the website, you go elsewhere. You know, you go to Wikipedia, the New York Times, the Washington Post, whatever you think is reliable, you go to those sources, see what they have to say about the original website, and that enhances, increases your accuracy dramatically. So that is what schools are doing quite successfully. In, in I mean, you know, the programs work uh, very well. And the debunking handbook only hints at that. It is not a media literacy handbook. But it does explain how to debunk once you have encountered false information. Now, for school children, I think the most important thing is to tell when they are encountering information that's reliable or that isn't reliable. And that's a separate issue. And rumor has it that somebody is working on a handbook on that right now. Ooh. <laughs> nice. You cannot say any more. Can I can't say any more right now because honestly, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the leader on this. Oh, but, okay. Uh, uh, okay. I, I may be part of it in the end. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, please keep us on the loop if uh, something comes out of it because we would love to disseminate things like that. Will the 2011 version still be available just with an indication that it might be outdated? Or? No, well, we've done it both ways. We've, if you now go to the old link, assuming Google has cleared your cache, then you should go to the new debunking handbook. So anybody who uses the old link gets to the new one. However, we had a link at the new place. It's not very big. It kind of, you know, it's in the bottom right corner somewhere. It says, oh, for archival reasons, if you know about the old handbook, here it is. So we're not hiding it at all. Good, good. But we're not foregrounding it either because now we have a better and more recent product that is uh, uh, more extensive. Mm -hmm. So, but we're also hoping to catch everybody who goes to the old address to be automatically redirected to the new one. So that's what happened to me. Yeah, I did try it and uh, it works. Good, good. I've tried it too, but you never know what happens to other people because it can stick around in your cache for a surprisingly long time. So yeah, that's right. 
That's right. Um, you mentioned the skeptical movement before. And where do you see us or where do you see the skeptical movement? Do we have a chance to actually make a difference um, in debunking, in changing the world? <laughs> or would you say like, ah, oh, it's a... It's a lost cause. <laughs> oh, well, well, nothing is ever a lost cause un until you're dead. So don't worry about that. I mean, if you know, nothing is ever lost. There are just further fights you have to fight at worst. No, I think the skeptics movement is very important in particular because some politically motivated bad faith actors, let's be honest about it, they are acting in bad faith, politically motivated bad faith actors have claimed the title skeptic for themselves in the context yeah. of climate denial. Now the same people <laughs> are doing it with COVID-19 and calling themselves, you know, lockdown skeptics and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, you take one look and yeah, it's not skepticism. It's a political operation that is masquerading as skepticism. And it's basically denialism. Of course it is. Of it course is. it is. Now there, there are differences between COVID and climate change in terms of the certainty of the science and what it is that's certain and what isn't. So. You know, it's 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 a little more complicated than saying everybody who has any skepticism about COVID is a denier. Well, no, that's not true. However, uh, a lot of people who claim to be skeptics about COVID and the countermeasures to COVID are, in fact, not skeptical. Quite on the contrary, they're extremely gullible. A lot of them believe tweets that come from troll farms in St. Petersburg. You know, I mean, that's not skepticism. That's that's kind of, you know, that's something else. So I think you, you guys play an extremely important role in that to reclaim and protect the term skepticism, which, of course, is a good thing. I mean, skepticism is a good thing. And scientists are skeptical. I mean, I'm skeptical. That's that's. Oh, I, I don't think I'm particularly gullible. If somebody tells me something, I'm usually pretty skeptical about it. But I'm not denying scientific evidence, as far as I know. No one has ever accused me of that. I think, as I've already said, that the debunking handbook and your work in general, because it's not, not only the debunking handbook that you, you do for, for the world, uh, you do much more than that. And uh, your work is very important in giving us ammunition to fight with. And uh, if we do understand what you give us as the scientific background, then we can uh, exploit it better. And this is what leads me to another question. I've noticed, and I'm quite fond of uh, that fact, that this debunking handbook, this 2020 version of it, puts an emphasis on something that has not been very much emphasized earlier, and that is the inoculation theory. Ah, and, yes. And I think we don't pay enough attention to that. So could you tell us something about what it is, how it came about, and uh, how you implemented it on the, the, the debunking handbook? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I mean, inoculation, the basic idea of inoculation is just like in medicine. You expose people to a weakened dose of a, of a bad argument. Mm -hmm. And you use that to protect them against buying into that bad argument later. To be honest, in 2011 or whenever it was, 10 years ago, when we wrote the first debunking handbook, I wasn't aware of that research. And it hadn't really... There was inoculation research, but it was never connected to misinformation. It was limited to persuasion research. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, I didn't know about this research yeah. at the time. And now, uh, well, John Cook and I and Sandra van der Linden and John Rosenbeck 
and Uli Ecker, we have done a lot of work on inoculation subsequently. And, and the picture is quite encouraging. And basically, what it means is that if I tell you ahead of time of how you might be misled by bad faith actors, then if they actually try that on you, you no longer buy into that. So, for example, John Cook and Billy Ecker and I published a paper a couple of years, three years ago, where we showed that with climate denial. We told people how the tobacco industry in the 60s and 70s had used this appeal to fake experts to dismiss the medical evidence about the health hazards of smoking. And so the tobacco industry would dress up these people in lab coats and run these ridiculous surveys and then come up with some number of 25,000 physicians think that, you know, this brand of cigarettes is really good for you. <laughs> Clears their lungs. Yeah, exactly. Climate deniers do exactly the same thing. You know, they're, they're asking everybody, you know, uh, out on the street or on the internet to sign these petitions pretending to be a scientist. And then when you have a look at it, it's sort of, you know, it's signed by the Spice Girls and the, the cast of MASH and, and you know, <laughs> uh, TV shows and all that. And it's kind of complete nonsense. But at first glance, it looks impressive. So in this experiment, we told people that. We said, hey, look here, this is what the tobacco industry did. And then sometime later, we confronted them with a climate denial effort, you know, the parallel effort to create that appearance of a debate. And people were resistant to that if they had just heard about the tobacco industry. So, and, and that's just one example. There's a lot of different examples. Sander van der Linden has done a lot of work. Uh, Sander and I right now are working on a collaborative project where we um, were exploring brief videos that educate people in under two minutes about how they might be misled. And then we find that, hey, you know, that works. People become better at detecting misleading argumentation on Twitter immediately afterwards. Yeah. So I've even got a paper with a PhD student of mine that we're just finishing where we show that with a video, we can even protect people against extremist messages, Islamophobic or Islamist extremist messages. They, they all use a similar playbook, which we identified. We then tell people about it in a video and afterwards, they become very good at detecting when when they're being misled or when they're trying when somebody's trying to radicalize them. So I think that's very promising, and I think that, to my mind, is the way to go. In particular, because you can stay ahead of the game. You don't have to wait for somebody to say something that's false. If you can anticipate how they're going to do it, you can teach people ahead of time about the technique. And once they mm -hmm. know the technique, people can apply that elsewhere. Yeah, and they can recognize when they're uh, exposed to the same kind of dishonest arguments in a later stage. You also call it pre-bunking. That's, that's the same thing. I think I like that term a lot because- Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. the same as inoculation, but hey, it sounds good. So we call yeah, it pre-bunking. <laughs> pre sound bites are important. So we, when we had uh, Sander von der Linden on the show, he talked about the app called Bad news as well. Is it still going on? Is it is it still available? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, it's going on, and bad news works very well on the, on the basis of okay. all the data we have. It works uh, across different cultures. Okay. Yeah, it works really well. There's just one. Well, there are two problems. One is that it takes a long time. It takes about fifteen or twenty minutes to play the game. Okay. Not everybody will be willing to invest that time. The second potential problem is that 
if you're extending this into sensitive domains like radicalization research, then you've got to be a little bit careful that you're not inadvertently training people to become extremists through this. Oh, yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I think the risk is extremely small. And I know that Sander and John Rosenbake have a paper that I think is now in press where they deal with that by changing the game slightly so it becomes one of identifying misleading argumentation rather than producing it. Because you see, the initial bad news game, people actually had to mm-hmm. create their own misinformation and earn badges by being a good troll, a good yeah, misinformer. Yeah. It works beautifully, but I'm not sure you want to do that with uh, extremist <laughs> messages because just in case somebody actually says, oh, I want to be one of them. That's a good idea. So, exactly. So they have now changed that to, to eliminate that risk. I think it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I like the idea of our videos. And I mean, Sander and I are working on that together. So we don't disagree on this. It's just there's different, different projects. The nice thing about the videos is that we got them down to less than two minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think we can probably get something effective happening in under a minute. Right. But we haven't done that yet. But looking at what we've got with the two minutes and how big the effects are and how much redundancy there is in, in even in the two minutes, I'm pretty optimistic that a really clever videographer will get this down to one minute and have the same content in it. I mean, you can, you can do a lot okay. in, in one minute. I was super impressed with what the guy we're working with uh, has done. Yeah. And so once you get down to that, you can talk about a massive rollout through social media, yeah. Twitter, you're reaching a hell of a lot more people with something that's under a minute than if you, if you ask them to play a 15-minute game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a practical consideration, I think that's worth Absolutely. Yeah. So you're following up this, uh, you, you're measuring this, the outcome scientifically on this. So you make sure that it's really, it really is effective before you... Absolutely. Yes, everything. Absolutely. That's our, yeah, totally. We have a control condition where they get a video that's of equal length. But it's about, you know, Bitcoin or giraffes or some other, you know, completely innocuous topic. And people in either condition then get follow-up questions, which is to evaluate simulated tweets or social media posts. And people then say, well, you know, this is what I think of that. I might share this. I think it's trustworthy, you know, to varying extents. And we find that after they watch the inoculation video, they're less likely to share bad information. They're they're more likely to differentiate the trustworthiness between good and bad. So it does have an effect, and reliably so. I've now done enough uh, experiments on this uh, to be pretty confident. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're you're pretty close to. You talked about rolling this out. When do you think that will happen? Oh, well, less than a year. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) the problem is that when you're being close to something in scientific terms, you're still doing a lot of statistics and analyses and you got to get the stuff peer reviewed and you got to write it up. So rolling things out is is uh, never happening at the speed that I would like it to be happening at because Mm -hmm. uh, science is just unfortunately a slow process and it has to be. But yeah, I'm pretty confident we'll have something out in under a year yeah. and possibly large scale. Really looking forward to seeing that.
Oh, you bet. <laughs> it'll, it'll, I don't think you'll miss it. We'll, we'll make sure we make enough noise, I hope, for you to see it. Good. Big bang. <laughs> yeah, based on previous experience, I trust you on that. Yeah, definitely. If you don't mind me deviating slightly from this uh, original topic of, of the debunking handbook, uh, you've done extensive research into human cognition and certain aspects of it. So have you ever come across big surprises about human cognition in your career as a scientist? I mean, something that, that you had a preconception about and, and it completely changed uh, based on, um, on science. Certainly as a student, undoubtedly. I think my naive conception of people as being kind of rational thinking beings who are so much smarter than elephants and dolphins, you know, I mean, that, that kind <laughs> of naive conception fell by the wayside pretty quickly in, in my first year at college when I found out, whoa, what do you mean people do this? And then you look at it and you figure out, wow, yeah, people really do this. So, so that kind of disabused me of the, the idea that, you know, I, that intuition or that assumptions about people as being, you know, these incredibly fascinating rational machines you know, I mean, that we're not all like that at all times. So let me give you one specific example that I think is, is quite interesting in that regard. Now, there's work done on this and we have data on this. So I'm, I'm pretty confident about when I say this, I'm pretty confident about it. If you ask the general public whether memory works like a video camera, like a recorder that takes information, puts it somewhere into this brain so we can then recall it. Well, a surprisingly large number of people endorsed that in the public. Mm -hmm. Something mm -hmm. like, depending on how you draw the line, you know, something like between half and two thirds will, will to some extent agree with this or, or think it's totally true. Now, if you do the same, if you ask the same question to scientists, <laughs> zero percent will endorse that proposition. It is just stunning how clear the expert consensus is on the fact that memory is reconstructive and not like a video recorder, whereas the public thinks the opposite. So mm -hmm. that to me is the most striking example. And I used that in my first year lectures as an example. And then, you know, five minutes later, I get people, 150 people in my online lectures, I get them to hallucinate. I produce a false memory. And then I say, well, did you think this morning when you woke up that you'd be hallucinating in the lecture today? And they all said, oh, no, <laughs> of course not. But they did. And it's very easy to do. I mean, there's, there's stuff we can do that works every single time. And people will come up with a false memory for something that they actually think they saw, but they never did. And I mean, I can make a building disappear in front of your eyes. You'd never notice, you know. I mean, I do it all the time in my class. So <laughs> that's surprising if you don't know it. The difficulty is that once you know it, <laughs> nothing surprises you anymore. So, uh, so to answer your question, yeah, I was surprised in 1978 and 1979. And since then, uh, there's not much that surprised me. I mean, sometimes the magnitude of what people are capable of does surprise me. You're being very diplomatic in your choice of words. That's amazing. Well, ask me again, <laughs> ask me again day after tomorrow and see how the American election went. Ooh. And I might have an update Ooh. on that. Okay. okay. Intuition. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are you currently working on that might be of interest to, to skeptics? Well, I've got, well, I've got a couple of papers uh, coming out or just recently published. The most recent thing 
that I think might be of interest to you is a huge report that I was first author on for the European Commission called Technology and Democracy, which is publicly available. If you just Google my name and add technology and democracy, it'll pop up on the Commission website. And that's reviewing the literature about how social media and the online architecture affects democracy, which is one of my focal topics at the moment in, in a lot of different aspects. And because I think misinformation is just a piece of a much bigger puzzle, which is about the reinforcement structures of the online economy and how they affect our behavior. And so in a nutshell, the buzzword here is attention economy. Basically, whenever you go online and you get something for free, well, then you are the product because somebody else is using your data to make money out of it. If you go to Facebook and you get a free whatever you do on Facebook, <laughs> you're the product because they're using your data to send you ads and do all sorts of other things. And I think we, we have to understand that if we want to deal with misinformation, we got to look at the underlying architecture of the ecosystem. We got to understand what the implications are of things like micro-targeting targeting ads to specific individuals. That, that has profound consequences for democracy. And algorithms, the fact that anything you look at online in your social media feed is not just there at random. You know, it's there because an algorithm decides this is good for you to see this. And the algorithm makes decisions based on criteria that have nothing to do with accuracy, veracity, or democracy. The only thing they care about is to keep you there so they can sell you stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we all sort of kind of know this. But if you dig deeper into this, it actually makes a profound difference to, to how we interact with each other. For example, some months ago, evidence became available that Facebook knew that its algorithms are polarizing people and that many extremists became extremists because of Facebook. And YouTube as well, but Facebook primarily. And Facebook didn't change the algorithms because they thought, well, we're going to lose money. We make mm -hmm. more money by polarizing people, pitting them against each other, turning them into extremists than if we back off. And, you know, that's pretty profound. And that is something we really have to understand and counteract. So I spent a lot of time digging into that. And I have a paper coming out, I hope this week, but it's sort of within days of being out, where I show that Donald Trump's tweets are successfully diverting media attention from topics he doesn't like, and to the point where the media is then dropping an issue because Trump was successful in diverting the media. Now, again, that's something we have to understand. And I don't mm -hmm. think the media have really understood, by and large, how the world has changed and how much the power structure has shifted from the media, away from the media, to social media and to particular individuals who can exploit uh, social media. Donald Trump is just one of them, but, you know, hmm. there are others. And the whole thing is sort of accelerated by these algorithms. So you have a fairly bubbling, turbulent kind of cauldron of developments out there online that, that I think we have to understand. And we got to do it quickly if we mm -hmm. want to get this beast under control. Mm. Do you think that it can be controlled still? Yes. That, that kind of control can be achieved? Yes. And let me be very clear, by control, I don't mean censorship. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean censorship. 
but what I mean by control is recognition of the problem and addressing it by just giving guidelines to algorithms saying, hey, your algorithm must not polarize people. Mm -hmm. How you achieve that is your problem, you know, but you can't do it. And those are, well, the report I just mentioned has a whole chapter in there about how that could be regulated. And some of the co-authors of the report were legal scholars. So uh, I think there are ways of doing that. There's ample evidence that the social media giants can make a difference. And sometimes it takes very little. Hmm. There's a famous example in India. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but a couple of years ago, there were all these mob killings, gruesome stuff. I mean, like, you know, dozens of people got murdered for no reason at all, other than that a mob was incited by WhatsApp. Now, one of the reasons this happened was because two things. Number one, people could forward a message to an unlimited number of others. And that led to viral spread. And secondly, the recipient couldn't tell that that message was forwarded. They thought it came from their friend when in fact it didn't. Now, WhatsApp made those two changes. They first identified forwarded messages as being forwarded, and they limited the number of forwarded messages. Ooh. Now, it's very difficult to establish causality because this is not an experiment. It's observational. But nonetheless, it is striking how that put an end to mob violence in India. So uh, that was not censorship. That was simply introducing friction. Yeah. There's a lot of recent work suggesting that if you introduce a tiny bit of friction, if you make it harder for people to share things, then you can cut sharing by up to 95%, which Facebook did to their credit with COVID-19 misinformation. I think Twitter did that too. Indeed they did. They give you a warning now. If you haven't read the link you're sharing, they say, uh, hello, do you really mean to do that? <laughs> you can still do yeah. it, yeah. but they make it harder. Little things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. can, can make a huge difference. We have the data on that. It's not that we're lost and don't know what to do. We do have data on how we can reduce sharing and how we can break viral cascades and how we can fix things. The problem is somebody has to tell Twitter or Facebook, hello, guys, you got to do this. And in the United States, that political will is at the moment absent, but it is very much present in Europe. I mean, everybody knows the writing is on the wall. The European Union will do something. And I'm pretty optimistic that they'll get it at least half right, which is incredibly good <laughs> given, the, given the complexity of this. If they get it half right, wow, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, it's still politicians who have to make the decisions. So yeah, you're right. If, if, if it's half right, then we have to be happy. I know. But with very few exceptions, I think the politicians have woken up to the problem. I talk to policymakers and politicians a lot, mm -hmm. and they are not complacent. They do yeah. understand mm -hmm. how important this is and that they have to fix it. And that cuts across party lines. One of the interesting things we found, uh, a team that I worked with at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, we did a survey recently where we asked people in Germany, the UK, and the US, their attitudes towards personalization and micro-targeting and their data being used and all that kind of stuff. And what we found is that uh, politics doesn't matter. It cuts totally across party lines. Republicans as well as Democrats do not want their personal data to be used for political targeting. And it was even stronger in Germany and the UK. The Americans are sort of a little more relaxed about it, but not much. So I think there's an opportunity here for uh, uh, people across, you know, the broad left to right center 
to come to an agreement on that. The fringes will always say, no, 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 we don't want that because it works to their advantage. But, you know, let's just wait and see what happens tomorrow. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you more afterwards. Yeah, right. So uh, that's a very good uh, way to end this interview, I think, on on, uh, on an optimistic view of things. And, and we keep referring to what's happening tomorrow. It, we are recording this the day before the US election. Of course, that's what we are referring to. So you will know more, dear listeners, than, than we do. Yeah. When this comes out, <laughs> yeah. You will, yeah, then you will see if our... Yes. Well, yeah, you will be. Most likely not a final result, though. But uh, yeah, we'll see what we will we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. But before we, we leave you, Stephen, um, where can people find out more about the, the, the handbook and maybe other things that you mentioned that you're working on? Well, if you go to my homepage, cogsciwa.com. Mm-hmm. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, Everything I publish or do or say is there. Mm-hmm. And um, you can find links from there. I mean, I've got to update it. <laughs> Reality is outpacing my ability to update it, but I've, I'm planning on doing that in the next couple of days to make sure that JRC report, the European Commission report I just mentioned, is up there. That only came out a few days ago, so I haven't had time yet. But yeah, there are links to everything from that homepage. Oh, great. Thank you. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'd like to thank you for your time. You've been very generous with it, and it's been amazing to to hear you talk about all that. And the work that you've done and the work that you do is is just mind-blowing. I love it, and thank you very much for that. Keep it up. Well, thank you for having me. It was great fun. Likewise. Okay, Stephen Lewandowski, thank you very much. Goodbye. Okay, take care, guys. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. You know what? I think this has been one of our most important interviews. And I don't say it lightly because what these guys are doing and what these guys have come up with, the debunking handbook, is probably the single most important document out there for skeptics. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. This is real research, scientific research into how to become, if you will, a better skeptic or to help people to become a little bit more skeptical. Yeah. So it's not guesswork. They're doing their their science, they're doing their homework, and it's a collaboration from all around the world, really, with people who are who have researched this it, it, it's it's very good and it's also very tangible and it's not too overwhelming they have managed to cook the the end result the handbook into i think it's 19 pages on a pdf so you can absorb it out of which four are listing references <laughs> that, that's yeah. right if you want to go into that but if you skip that it's even less so um, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 and it's like what they're doing is seems to be very effective and influential too so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's just a great job yeah like he's he's just been doing such a great job yeah and by what i said earlier about how important that that document is i didn't mean that the other books that we have had so far are not that <laughs> important anymore they are still the greatest value that that you can get but um, even if you have read through the books, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book, all the books of Edzard Ernst and uh, Massimo Polidoro and James Randi and uh, Brian Dunning, you can still profit from browsing through and reading through carefully, actually, this 15-page-long 
document because you will be able to use it in your everyday skeptical activities. Yeah, it's a must read, I think. It is, it is indeed. So that has been all that we could fit in this uh, episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And of course, many, many thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, when we come back with a regular episode, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Good. Yeah, Andras, you don't have to look like a chipmunk when you do it. It's the sound that comes. I mean, you can if you want to, but it doesn't. It's not necessary. I mean, the the way Batman turns up on his shirt, it even looks like teeth. If it's if it's like only the top, can you see it? Yeah, 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 like that, like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But there is the nest backs. There is the nest. <laughs> really? There is a nest somewhere here? Okay. And until next week, when we come back with a regular interview. Uh, <laughs> until next. <laughs> this was an irregular interview, wasn't it? <laughs>